Welcome to another exciting episode of the Alternative Investment Podcast. Listen in as your hosts, Jimmy Atkinson and Andy Hagens, discuss tax-advantaged investment strategies to help you grow your wealth. From commodities to real estate, private equity, agribusiness, and more, we cover it all here on the Alternative Investment Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I am your host, Andy Hagens, and today we're talking about underwriting and investment selection, due diligence, all sorts of interesting topics. And with me here today, I have Jill Homan, who is president at Javelin 19. Jill, welcome to the show. Great. Thanks for having me. And, and Jill, I, I want to dive right in and talk about your experience in Javelin 19 because I think it's very relevant to our discussion. Um, so could, you, could you tell us a little bit of your background and what your company does? Sure. So my background is really 15 plus years of real estate acquisitions and development, uh, primarily working with institutional capital and institutional size deals. Um, we've been focused in the last four years on utilizing the Opportunity Zone tax incentive. Um, so I can get into that in, in just a moment, minute. Um, and so with, um, well, I'll do that right now. So with the Opportunity Zone tax incentive, um, that's a, a, a series of tax incentives for investors to invest in designated low and moderate income areas. And by investing in these areas, um, investors receive a series of tax benefits. Um, the, you know, the first of which is a deferral of um, your capital gain taxes. So you take a capital gain, you invest it into a qualified opportunity fund, you defer paying capital gain taxes until tax year 2026. Um, and then if you hold that investment, if that fund holds that investment for 10 years, um, all of the appreciation that you invest in is tax-free. Um, so that's kind of the punchline of the two uh, main benefits. Um, but if you remember nothing else, um, an investor from my calculations, other accounting firms' calculations, um, they have an opportunity to earn between 40 to 50% higher after-tax returns um, than compared to non-designated um, opportunity zones. So that's something that we've been utilizing for the last four years. Um, and that's taken the form of really, we, we focus in three verticals. Uh, the first of which is we're working with qualified opportunity funds. Um, so we're working with a sports anchored fund um, called Fortuitous Partners. And um, they're um, building a soccer stadium, bringing a professional soccer team and building the real estate around um, a site in, um, in Rhode Island. Um, and then secondly, we're working and spending a lot of time with Pinnacle Partners, um, one of the key members of their team. And we're um, at Pinnacle, a boutique fund of four to five uh, high quality uh, multifamily institutional deals in um, really fast growing markets. Um, so two of the markets that we've um, locked in deals with are in Denver and in Nashville. Um, so we're working on securing two more um, development deals, multifamily uh, to round out that fund. Um, and then that's in one vertical. The second vertical is we do do um, some real estate development um, that hasn't been a focus of late because of all the time we're spending with our funds. Um, but we have developed um, and co-developed in Opportunity Zones um, in the project delivered um, last year. And then thirdly, um, I'm a registered investment advisor representative. Um, so I've provided investment advice to individuals and family offices. Um, and that's centered around uh, utilizing the Opportunity Zone tax incentive 
And so I've advised um, individual investors on um, which deals to invest in, so on an individual deal basis. Um, and then we've also advised um, individuals and families on uh, which opportunity fund to invest in. And, and that's something that we can talk more about um, because there's some uniqueness about qualified opportunity funds as compared to traditional real estate private equity funds. Um, but that's really what we do. Um, and again, this is all kind of under the umbrella of utilizing this tax incentive. You know, that's interesting that you mentioned uh, you work with family offices and advising them on opportunity zone investing. We had DJ Van Curen on the show uh, a while back, and he mentioned that a lot of family offices are not even taking advantage of the program hardly at all, or, or even necessarily a lot of family offices um, aren't necessarily you know, doing their real estate transactions in as tax advantaged of a way as, as they could, you know, if they were to optimize their transactions uh, for tax mitigation. In your experience, you know, with, with RIAs, uh, with family offices, you know, how many of them are really aware of the benefits of opportunity zones, you know, it, it, and, and are, are poised to even, you know, look at investments and potentially take advantage of them? You know, have we, have we done our job in educating the market about them and their advantages, or is there still a lot of work to do there? Um, I think, you know, I, I'd like to say that I think a lot of, um, particularly the, the larger um, the RIA, the larger the family office, uh, you know, it's correlated, but they have uh, are much more well-versed and have most likely uh, made um, OZ investments. Um, but, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes I come across investors that are really not, um, um, focus on it or have really made OZ investments. Um, I would say I generally um, interact with family offices or investors once they've made the decision to um, either explore or to look at an OZ investment um, because my focus is really, you know, a subcategory of alts, which is real estate and tax advantage investing. Um, you know, that being said, most, you know, most families and, and high net worth individuals have um, an alt strategy or, you know, or at least thinking about, I'm going to allocate this amount to real estate. And then of that, um, you know, this is a long-term hold, um, which is sometimes um, can be a, you know, a challenge for some to think about, you know, I need to invest and hold this for long-term. And, and that's um, sometimes what me, might be a, a sticking point. Um, but because of the, how significant the tax advantages are, and we didn't even get into um, when you hold an investment, you know, part of the benefit of owning real estate is depreciation. Um, and so with OZ, you can depreciate the asset. And then when you go to sell, uh, you mark your basis up to fair market value. So there's no depreciation recapture. Um, and so there's significant benefits. Um, but I think sometimes, you know, particularly if, you know, my dad's in his 80s and, you know, this probably isn't a good fit for him to realize all the benefits. Um, you know, we've also met other investors who are giving away their all their money. So it's not a good fit. Um, so really, you want to find someone that um, can take advantage on the other side of the 10 year hold. Um, and then it's part of their overall um, real estate portfolio. Um, but because of I, I think this is um, what is perhaps a once in a generation tax incentive. Um, and it's also doing some good, but because of how significant I think it is, that's why I leaned in uh, and focused the business on it. Um, and that's why I'm, um, I would say I evangelize and, and recommend that investors at least consider it uh, within their portfolio and, and think about um, how this might fit. 
Um, and so that that's, you know, why we talk a lot about it. So you saw the once in a lifetime opportunity and you're seizing it, uh, pun intended. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, let's shift to macro just for a moment. I, I want to dive into a lot of your experience with underwriting and everything, but I also want to talk about the moment we're in. It's Thursday, July 28th. Uh, I don't know the exact date that this episode will air, but it should be within a few weeks. Uh, and we just got the report today that we've now had two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. So is it safe to say that we're in a recession or should we change the definition of the word recession so that we're technically not in a recession? What's your take on that, Jill? Um, I think it's silly to be talking about the nomenclature. Um, I, I think if you were to walk down the street and ask people, you know, are you better off today than you were a year ago? And, and I think most people, you know, with unless absent health concerns, I think people would say, you know, wow, my my 401k or my portfolio's down. Um, the gas is, you know, so much more expensive. Um, and my wages, I feel like, you know, I may have gotten a little bit of a of a increase in my income, but my dollar's not going further. And so I think it's, you know, to me, it's silly to, to try to disguise what I think most people feel, um, which is we're in a recession and we're also dealing with um, some of the most significant inflation that we've had in decades. And I think it's it's really constraining um, the, the population, the average, um, average folks. And we're also seeing it play out in projects where um, the costs are up. And um, and then, you know, rents are up to some degree as well. And it's just it's squeezing returns. Um, so, you know, the question is, as we think about long term, um, what's the impact? You know, I can speak to you have some thoughts on what the impact on opportunity zones are, given um, we're in this uh, down market and also a volatile market. Um, and so what I'd say is just first that uh, with the this tax incentive, um, Opportunities and investments, they're long-term holds. Mm -hmm. And, and so um, we're focused in, in, and also the advice and, you know, with Pinnacle and other funds that we work with, we're focused on markets that have demonstrated over the years, um, strong population growth, strong wage growth and resiliency, um, especially during the pandemic. And also um, cities that are appropriately well capitalized. So these are cities, you know, whose pension liabilities are not out of whack and that they're appropriately capitalized. And, and so um, what that translates to is our, you know, our expectation that these are cities that can weather um, a downturn and with a long-term hold, you might have a dip, but you can come back on um, the other end. And so, um, and so that's, you know, that's first of all, as, as we think about you know, the benefit of opportunity zone is this long-term hold. And then secondly, um, real estate can be a hedge against a recession and is less correlated with the stock market. Um, so I think there's an opportunity to diversify, diversify away from um, some more volatile assets. Um, and then, you know, factoring in the long-term hold, it's an opportunity to get control of an asset in a pathway of growth. And, and if it's appropriately lever, then, you know, you have an opportunity to get some, get some cash flow. And so there's a lot of caveats, caveat, caveats, but that's how we think about it. And, you know, you, you have influence over, um, you know, the fund can decide, you know, what the leverage is, the location of where they um, select the deals and the whole period. Um, and so it's, it's a matter then of, you know, are we coming in at the right basis? Um, and costs are what they are, but sometimes it means, you know, skipping over some deals if you feel your basis um, is, you know, is too high and the returns are going to be 
uh, too compressed um, because right now uh, my sense is that the investors um, and the capital are the ones that are getting squeezed um, yeah. because the landowners don't want to reduce their costs. The, the general contractors and all the service providers are passing along the cost increases um, and the lenders are decreasing their leverage. And so it's really, you know, the one where a year ago, the returns might be to the deal 15. Now they're, you know, 13 or 14. And everybody's looking to the capital to just say, well, you know, I guess you got to accept a low return. Sure. And, and well, I think, if I could just interrupt for a yeah, moment, please. I mean, I, okay, two things I want to unpack. First, I totally agree with you. The, the whole, are we technically in a recession? Well, yes, we are, but, um, it's almost like it doesn't matter if, if the average man or woman on the street believes that we are. That's going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy, however you define it. But even if you want to define it differently, uh, instead of, you know, two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth, you know, OK, how about several consecutive quarters of negative real wage growth uh, where wages aren't keeping pace with inflation? So, you know, I, I think it's almost beside the point, you know, everyone kind of knows where we are and however you want to verbalize it, that's fine. But shifting to the institutional real estate market, it, it feels to me, and I know OZs are ground up development almost exclusively, um, but it feels to me that assets haven't really been totally repriced to account for where we are in the, you know, investment uh, market cycle. Like, uh, you know, sellers of, of assets are kind of crossing their fingers and, and holding on and, you know, not not quite willing to make that price adjustment. Um, do you think that that we have just a couple more months of of kind of reality check? Uh, it may, maybe this is more pertinent to the value add world, you know, than ground up development. But I, I feel like, you know, it's like everyone kind of knows we're in a recession, but some market participants aren't willing to to totally reflect that, at least with asset pricing. Yeah. Well, so what we're trying to focus on are, are projects where we, you know, somebody's been under contract for a while. Um, so, you know, as the markets appreciated, we kind of got last year's price. Mm -hmm. um, the project went through a rezoning or the project's gone through some pre-development. Um, and while, you know, the construction costs have gone up, some of that's been offset by, you know, we really like our land basis. And then also, you know, these are really high uh, rent growth markets. Um, sure. So we're seeing, you know, rents in the market today that justify new construction. So that's how we're really looking at, at it. Um, but to your point, as you say, you know, as, um, as we project forward, what I really expect is that um, deals are not um, a number of deals or some deals are not going to move forward um, because, you know, you're going to land appreciated. So you're going to be at a higher land value because land sellers and a lot of sellers, you anchor on what you saw previously and, you know, all this appreciation. Um, and then you're not willing to accept less. So it's either the land trades or it doesn't trade. And so if it trades, then you're at a higher basis and then the costs are even higher. Uh, and so when it kind of comes out the other end, the capital at a certain point um, is going to say, I can't accept this return for this risk. Um, and so that's what I think is going to start to happen. Um, and then you would think that, you know, either the land would be retraded, some of the projects that don't move forward, that means the construction will slow down, which means, you know, there's might be some relief on construction pricing. So all of that should work its way through. 
Um, but also having been um, someone who experienced, you know, 2006 through 2008 and seeing um, what happened in the market and, and, and the illiquidity in the capital markets um, and, and all the stuff that was supposed to happen, it just took a long time or, you know, some of what, you know, these assets that were supposed to be restructured just never were come, never came back to the market. Um, so I, I'm just skeptical that there's going to be a, such a significant kind of repricing in the market. Um, what I expect is, is that some land will be retraded, some projects will be restructured, um, and I just think everything will take longer um, than what it does, because it always does. Um, well, I suppose so if, if you're anchored on a price as a, as a, uh, a seller of an asset and inflation is 10% a year, just, just wait 18 months or, <laughs> you know, it'll reflate yeah. inflation to whatever price you're anchored on. Um, but, but I think I agree. It's, it's going to take some time to digest. I mean, you know, I'm not that patient. Yeah. I want to see. I want to see all these assets just go on sale like tomorrow. Um, well, that, and that's the that's the challenge because capital, a lot of capital, you know, I fully expect, and we saw this in the pandemic, is that capital will be raised to do distressed deals, and then you have so much capital that needs to go out the door, and that also has upward pressure on pricing. Mm -hmm. um, and so I saw that in during the pandemic. Actually, um, I had some friends that work in distress, and they said we. You know, this is our business, and we, you know, the, the pricing doesn't make any sense uh, because there have been additional capital that had been raised. Um, so my kind of my punchline with all of this is, you know, what I try to do is is really focus on and step back. Um, so focus on deals, look at just the fundamentals and the elements of the deal, and, and just make sure without financial engineering and without you know a series of all these things going right that the deal will work, but rather you know, the deal fundamentally, you know, a return on cost or the deal fundamentally makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, and then you can, you know, get into more, um, you know, more of the elaborate underwriting. Interesting. Well, I, that's a great juncture then to talk about underwriting. And, you know, this, this question, I suppose, in reference to the moment we're in, but also just in general, um, what are some of the underwriting mistakes that you see? Um, well, you go, go yeah, ahead. no. And so I, I'll give you a little backstory. And so what I, I would just, I don't characterize it as underwriting mistakes. Um, I just think it, it depends on the style. So I'll just give you a situation. So if you're selling, you know, if you're selling a multifamily property, you're going to, you're going to be really aggressive in how you underwrite it and what you show to the marketplace. Look, you can make all this money and, you know, all the rents are going to go up by 8%. Versus if you buy, you're going to have a different perspective on how you underwrite. Um, so rather than, you know, describing it as mistakes, I would describe it as, um, you know, as styles. And what I tend to do is I tend to underwrite a bit on the more conservative side um, and then kind of start to turn up the, you know, turn up the dial to see how, you know, how it can look. Um, but really settle in on a base case that says, you know, this is what I, you know, I think is likely or could happen. Um, but if, you know, if this was to happen this way and this, then we'd really, you know, um, we'd really be excited about the returns. And so if we're settled in on a conservative or fairly conservative base case, then we're feeling good about it. Um, and, and that's how I tend to underwrite. Um, 
And, and it was funny when I, I was thinking back, I've been thinking a lot about 2008. Um, and as I was in 2008, thinking about how crazy the marketplace was in 2006 and leading up to um, the downturn, um, I started joking with some friends that, you know, I should characterize um, the deals that we didn't do because, you know, a lot of brokers were laughing at us. You know, they said, oh, this is, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to get this deal if you don't underwrite this way. And we're like, we can't. Um, and so I was joking with a friend. I said, we should start keeping a metric about money saved um, for all the deals that we didn't invest in um, that ended up going sideways. But, <laughs> yeah, but then there's a lot of deals that, you know, as you're, it's hard to look through a downturn. And I just remember some folks that got early back in the market. Um, and I thought, how on earth are they, you know, are they going to do this deal? And they just ended up, you know, doing it. And the market was coming back and they were, you know, it's like the one on a surfboard. They were the first ones that kind of caught the edge of the wave and did phenomenally well. So, um, so I'm not saying my way is right. That's just, you know, how I've tended to, to underwrite. Um, and then, you know, I can speak more to um, individual deals, but um, the one unique thing, and I alluded to this previously, is that with opportunity zones, because there's a short amount of time that the fund has to invest in a deal, um, there, as a result, um, the funds are, have a um, shortened time period um, that they fundraise, they put the capital out, and, um, and, and that they close the fund. Okay. And that all has to do with this kind of short OZ period. Um, but as a result of that, um, what you see is that funds are quickly on, you know, fund one, fund two, fund three, they're on their second, you know, third and fourth um, fund. And, and as you're, um, you know, if you're an RIA or you're an LP and you're looking at a multi-asset fund, um, particularly with opportunity zones, you can have visibility into the underlying assets. Um, because these funds aren't out for um, a long period of time. And as soon as the capital comes in, the capital is being deployed, um, just like what we're doing at Pinnacle. And, you know, if you're to call us up, we can talk at length, share our underwriting um, about these underlying assets that we're investing in. Um, and if you contrast that with traditional real estate private equity, which um, traditionally has been, you know, invest in a strategy, maybe we'll, you know, maybe we'll have one anchor deal, but overall you're investing in a strategy versus with OZs, you can actually start to see on the beginnings of a portfolio or half of a portfolio, or depending on when you come in, you could even see almost all of the portfolio. Um, and so that is pretty exciting because then you have an ability to dig into the deals and look at um, their underwriting and see how you feel about it and how you feel about the, um, or how you think about the, um, the portfolio construction. Um, and so that's kind of one of the unique uniqueness with it. And um, so I, I would just say that's kind of how I think about, you know, underwriting and um, concerning versus, um, you know, versus aggressive. And just one example that I can get into is, is just we talk a lot now about cap rate. And, and if I knew what the cap rate would be in 10 years, then, you know, I probably wouldn't be on this call. I would be, you know, betting on the cap rate in 10 years and, 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 and I would know exactly what it would be. But um, but that's a challenge. And what you're really trying to do is directionally get it right. Um, and then also sensitize it um, if you're wrong. And, and that's, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of um, deals recently where, you know, folks are just continuing to underwrite, you know, today's cap rate or cap rate with just a little more escalation. 
And, you know, and, and it's, it's a challenge because when you look at the interest rate environment, your, you know, your cap rates logically would go up as interest rates are going up, but, you know, sometimes the market doesn't follow the logic. And so that's something that we've been thinking a lot about. Well, and, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but no, it, I mean, it seems to me the market is, is pricing in that, you know, the Fed has done a couple interest rate raises. Um, but they're not going to be able to do too many more. Um, it, it seems like a lot of their moves are like nine months too late. So, you know, like I've heard one theory yeah. that basically like the market is pricing in. We're already in a recession when they should have been raising, you know, rates because of inflation nine months ago. And then now obviously we're in a recession that's going to tamp down inflation. Um, but, you know, I don't think the, the recession is going to be too popular across society yes. so they're, they're not going to be able to keep rates elevated for very long and never mind you know the whole political policy discussion about national debt and being able to pay higher you know interest rates we, we have to essentially have a low interest rate to function as a country yeah uh, it's i mean it, to your point and even today it it came out that there's potentially another trillion dollar bill that's being spent in the name of you know, inflation, and you just ask yourself, you're like, what? <laughs> so, um, I mean, that's, it's one of these things that if you name a bill, anything, you know, maybe, maybe people will believe it, but it's just, you know, we're, you know, the, with the, the government spending as much money as they're spending, um, and then coupled with, you know, our, our Fed chairman finally getting on board that there is inflation, it's, you know, we don't, we can't really expect that leadership's going to come from the top. Um, and so that's why, you know, as, as we think about, you know, think about these things, it's, you know, I go back to one of the benefits of OZ is a longer term hold and you kind of the fundamentals of real estate. And, you know, and then we think a lot about, um, you know, is this, do we want to own this asset for 10 years? And is this a location we want to be in for 10 years? Um, and so we're finding that, when we say, you know, overwhelmingly, yes, um, those are the the deals that we really dig in on. So it sounds like Pinnacle Partners is focusing on the, the smile states or the sun belt. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, and then that's similar to um, for the investment advice and the investors that I've I've worked with. Um, you know, we're similarly focused in these high growth markets. So we've made invested investments in Richmond and Austin and Huntsville and um, and then, you know, Denver and Nashville. Um, so so absolutely. Yeah. And, it, you know, the thing about those real estate markets or, you know, it seems crazy to me. Like when I look at rent statistics in Florida, maybe to a slightly lesser degree in Texas, it's just crazy rent growth, but people keep moving to those states. I mean, for, for a variety of reasons, and I totally understand why. And so that trend is not likely to, I mean, as long as people keep moving to Nashville and people keep moving to Florida and people keep moving to Texas, those trends aren't going to reverse. And, you know, the thing about multifamily and you alluded to this is it's very resilient as an inflation hedge because you know, the, the asset owner can reprice rents on an annual basis or, you know, a lot, a lot more quickly than, you know, various other sectors of uh, commercial real estate. So um, especially with ground up construction, 
where you know you, you don't necessarily have to pay the the going cap rate you know yeah um it, it does seem like a great you know 10 year long term bet yeah and and i would i agree with you about the rent growth um you know one thing that i've observed is um these and and i've had debates with you know with some folks um you know, particularly folks who are in California or the West Coast and, you know, talking about, you know, secondary and tertiary cities and um, is what I've seen is the wages and in, in, um, in salaries that people are making. Um, I think the discount, you know, compared to if you were living in New York City compared to living in Nashville, I think the discount that someone would have to accept for living in Nashville, I think that has is and has and will continue to shrink. Um, so what you're finding is, is that there's this, um, and this has been written about for a number of years, is that there's this arbitrage where you have these corporate relocations and people are making a salary that's competitive with New York City, you know, maybe not as high, but, you know, much, much higher than, um, than the Nashville mean. And, and then the cost of living is, is much less. And so people are spending less than 30% of their wages on housing. And so when you think about these cities and, and all of the growth, um, there's, you know, theoretically some catching up and some room in that arbitrage um, for the rents to increase and people to continue to say it's still, you know, while it's, it, it's getting really, really expensive, I still can afford to live here. Um, and, you know, my hope is that these cities kind of don't um, surpass what the um, what the wages and the wage growth is, because I think that would be where the danger would be is, you know, because then that's when people are going to start moving out of these high growth to other, you know, other markets. Um, and, and, you know, what I would just say is when you look at the corporate relocations and you take, you know, Elon Musk companies and, and their relocation to Austin um, and, what I just say is, you know, once a corporate relocation has taken place, I just, I just don't see them going back. Um, and so I think some of these um, secondary cities that have now become primary are just going to continue to grow. And that's really what we think about for the 10 year hold. And if I could just make a quick comment as it relates to underwriting, you know, we talk a lot about the rapid rent growth in these areas. Um, and we see a lot of, you know, models and a lot of, um, you know, pitch decks and everything. Uh, and what we do in, in our rule is, is that, um, and I see this a lot, you know, the way to make every deal work is to grow rents by 4% or 5% or, and grow expenses by 1% or 2%. And, you know, just carry that for 10 years and then it makes any deal work. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a little bit of my number one pet peeve when I see a deal. Um, because it just doesn't make any sense on, you know, how rents could grow at such a different pace forever. Um, and so that's something that, you know, uh, but, you know, even though being in these high rent growth markets, we're still um, keeping our rent growth um, underwriting assumptions at 3%. And at the same time, keeping our expense growth underwriting at 3%. And we'll play around with that. Maybe we'll move it to 4-4 for both of them. Mm -hmm. um, just to, you know, see how that impacts. But what we want to do is kind of, you know, I think there's a sense that, you know, at some point there'll be a reversion to the mean. And, and what we'd like to do is kind of solve for the mean and see how the deal works. Interesting. Yeah, no, I, I, I think you're right. I mean, if, conceptually speaking, if I have an expense structure for like, let's say my labor costs to run an asset, 
the the growth in the cost of that labor should probably roughly match the rent growth, right? Because yeah. you know, um, people who who work in that location are also going to live in that location. And you can't have a situation where rate, well, I guess we have had it in the past year, but you can't indefinitely have a situation yeah. where wages are growing 2% and rents are growing by 6%. You can only do that so many years until we're all homeless, right? And to your point yeah. about the, the wage arbitrage, I mean, you see my green screen behind me. I have these uh, beautiful skyscrapers. Uh, and meanwhile, you know, I run the show from semi-rural Michigan. Um, but I don't think it's even purely about economics. Obviously, economics are a huge factor, but I also think, you know, with with the lockdowns and the pandemic, um, a lot of people, you know, want a different lifestyle. Um, and I think that trend is likely to continue as well. So uh, I wanted to ask about to just push on underwriting just a little bit more. So we have a lot of LPs and RAAs and advisors who listen to the show and, you know, I guess just speaking for myself, but, but probably on behalf of some of some of the audience, you know, we're, we're not all experts on underwriting on due diligence for, you know, uh, investment grade real estate. Um, but, you know, we know enough to, to look over a pro forma, to look over a deck, you know, realistically speaking, wh what's an approach that we can take to, you know, get a little better at that, get a little more, you know, street smart when we're evaluating yes. projects and pro formas? Yeah, I would say one of the easiest things, and I'll just, I'll speak about evaluating a single deal, um, if that's all right. Sure. So I think one of the, the easiest things is, um, is to calculate a return on costs. And, and so this is for, um, you know, I'm gonna speak about development deals, but um, you know, and, and it would be a different conversation um, if I was to speak about value add, but um, or, that type of thing. But um, a return on cost is your, um, your net operating income, so your NOI, as if the project was here today. So it's current rent, current expenses, your current NOI divided by your all-in project costs. And so um, that will produce a yield. You know, maybe it's five percent. If it's six percent, call me. Um, but but we're seeing projects really in kind of the fives um, right now. And and I'd have to say, you know. A number of years, you know, a couple of years ago, it had to be in the sixes and a few years out, you know, earlier, it had to be in the sevens. But but right now, you know, it's really in the fives. Um, but that doesn't tell you enough information because what what that really tells you is that's that's also um, the calculation for a cap rate. And and so that return on cost gives you a comparison um, to what the current cap rates are in the marketplace. Um, and, and so that should um, also um, spell out what the um, development premium you're getting paid for the deal. So now, do you, those do those do those costs like that that cap rate conceptually? We're comparing that for a ground up project to a cap rate. Do those move like one to one, or you know, or, are they a little more disjointed than than you might think? You mean the current cap rates to to your return on costs? Yes. Oh, they're more disjointed. Okay. So yeah, so because you'll see. You know, and I'll just take a quick. Um, so, for example, a value add cap rate could be a four, mm -hmm. okay, and a and a um, core cap rate could be a four, and you're going to end up with two completely deals. Your expectation for a four cap rate for a core deal is that you're buying almost a bondable project. It's just a steady stream, cash flow, cash flow, cash flow. Sure. Okay, it's like new vintage, probably you know 
2020, you know, it's something that's new that you're not going to have to put much money in. A um, value add cap rate of a four, the reason you're paying a four, and you can think about like tech stocks, the reason you're paying four is it's like the future potential. And so you can turn that four, you put in, you know, 8,000, 10,000 a unit, 15, 20, whatever. And you turn that four into three years from now, it becomes, you know, a six. And then, you know, another year it's, you season the NOI with, and then it's a seven. Um, and so that's why you're paying is, is there's a lot of meat on the bone and future potential for that. Um, with the way to think about a, a development um, cost, I think about it as the development premium to current cap rates. Mm-hmm. Um, because you're going, you're essentially, you're not going to be building the same product as the value add. You're going to be building the same product as something closer to a core deal. Mm-hmm. And, and with you a brand think, new roof and a brand yep, new, everything. brand new, everything. Yep. And all flashy and, you know, the latest and coolest amenities. Um, sure. And so, you know, assuming it's, you know, class A or, you know, or maybe it's, you know, a nice kind of pocket park, but nonetheless, and what you want to think about is if this building was standing here today, what would my cap rate be? And so if, if the building standing here today um, would be a cap rate of five mm-hmm. and you're building to a 5.4, you only have a 40 basis point premium um, for the development. And I think that's not enough. Um, I think you need between 100 to 150 basis point premium. And that's really sensitized to the market. So in Austin, you know, I'd, you know maybe it's 100, but in Topeka, maybe you want you know, something closer to 200. Um, and then with the idea is when you lever that, um, then that's when um, you can, you know, you look at getting, you know, positive cash on cash and, you know, and, and great returns. But the simplest thing to do is to kind of strip away all of the elements of, of kind of the IRR and just think about, you know, what would my NOI be? Not, you know, because a lot of people will trend their return on cost. They'll throw in some rent growth and everything. But no, you want to say, okay, if my rents, you know, we're here, the building was here, what's my return on cost? And then what would the cap rate be that I can compare it to? And if it's like, oh, cap rates here are four and um, I'm at a 5.4, that's 140 basis point spread. You know, that is really a market appropriate um, return. And then that's when you get into the next step, which is, you know, how real are these rents and how real are these expenses? And, and, you know, you kind of, you know, can start to dig in um, one step further, but I would even just start with um, the project sponsor's own numbers and calculate a return on costs. And then you can do one step further and, and say, okay, you know, do I believe in these rents and expenses? And if that all seems to check out, then you can kind of dig in um, even further. But that to me, you can't financially engineer a return on costs. Um, and and so that's why I've, I've seen a number of, you know, I see deals all the time that, you know, they show me a 20 IRR and I go to calculate a return on costs and it's, you know, it, it doesn't work um, because you're able to financially engineer a good IRR. Um, so there's a lot of ways, you know, lots of ways to do that. So that's lovely. Yeah. Just talking through the less, the less gameable aspects of the deck that we can dive into. And you, you mentioned, I know we're, we're running short on time, but I want to bring this back to opportunity zones because you mentioned that there might be like a hundred or 140 basis point premium that I would demand for investing in ground up development. So in your experience with family offices or, you know, ultra high net worth investors, are they demanding that sort of, or maybe insisting, are they insisting on that much of a premium for opportunity zone projects? Because I know that the opportunity zone 
tax incentive, you know, it juices an investor's triple net return so much because that tax incentive is is worth so much. Um, or is it the case that, you know, it would basically a lot of these projects would probably be pretty good projects even without the incentive. And then the incentive is just going to juice the returns way more if all goes according to plan. Yeah. So what I would say is that um, investors are open to looking at markets and deals that they otherwise wouldn't have looked at. Um, so perfect example, we've invested in several projects in Huntsville, and that wouldn't have been a target market. And then as I you know, learned more about the market, I got excited about, you know, toward the market um, and really saw the fundamentals. Um, so I would say that that's one of the benefits is, you know, attracting capital to areas um, that may not have been on the radar screen for traditional real estate, private equity. Um, but then, you know, also to answer your question, the 100 to 150 basis point um, is an appropriate um, premium um, because, you know, these are, you know, the, the capital should be um, compensated for the development risk. And I think keep in mind, you know, some folks and, you know, there's been situations where somebody spent 20 years building a company and then they, they made what is um, really a life-changing event for them, which is they sold their company, you know, for $50 million and they, you know, they have a $30 million capital gain, which is life-changing for them. Um, so I don't think that capital should accept a lower return um, compared to, you know, a, you know, something else. Um, and so that, you know, I'm finding that the capital wants an appropriate um, risk-adjusted return for, um, and, and even though it's an OZ capital, but I'm also seeing that folks are willing to go into other markets than, you know, what had been, you know, heretofore New York City, San Francisco, LA, <laughs> and DC. And, you know, that's why I think some of the growth happening in Nashville and their opportunity zones is just is remarkable because of, you know, it, it was great timing with their zones and also with the growth of the city. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to even hear about Opportunity Zones in Nashville because, you know, speaking now in 2022 versus when the Opportunity Zones were actually drawn, um, I'm like, well, Nashville's one of the hottest, best real estate markets in the United States, right? But, but obviously it had some census tracts that met the criteria to be zoned as an Opportunity Zone. Yeah, and, and the governors were the ones who designated the zones. Um, and and so if someone has a complaint about, you know, folks in New York had a complaint about, um, you know, the um, the zones, and they should, you know, go to the um, the governor who left a little early. Um, but that's and that's what you find is the governors were the one in charge, and they also used the most recent data to de designate the zones, and that was data from the census. Um, and they take a mid-year census, so those data from 2016 and 2017. Um, and this bill was passed and, and made into law at the end of 2017. Um, but census tracts are kind of funky shapes. Um, and it looks almost like little shapes that you take for your eye test. You know, what shape is this? Uh, and so sometimes you end up with like a long where, you know, part of the development's really been happening, but not over here. And it ends up, it's all kind of stuck into a census tract. Um, and so there is, you know, just to make the folks listening aware, um, there is a bill um, that's been introduced. It's bipartisan and bicameral, meaning both houses of, of you know, House and Senate um, have um, introduced legislation that would extend the OZ tax benefit um, from 2026 to 2028, as well as include um, some really terrific um, incentives as well 
and we won't get into those, but it's something to, you know, be mindful of um, as, you know, we come to an end, you know, and we have yet another election, um, but I, I think it's something to be mindful of because there's a, a real opportunity, no pun intended, um, that this could be extended and we'll continue the conversation about it um, at, you know, at the end of the year. Yeah. And I know our partners at Opportunity DB and my sometimes co-host, Jimmy Atkinson, uh, they recently hosted a policy webinar and also submitted a petition that I believe had a couple hundred signees. But, you know, I'm, I'm very hopeful that, um, you know, given that it's bipartisan and there's there's so little in Washington that is bipartisan these days. I'm an optimist. I choose to be hopeful. I, th I think yes. that the program will be reformed and improved and extended, but we're running short on time. So sure. before we uh, I cut you loose, Jill, I want to ask where can our viewers and listeners go to learn more about your consulting company, Javelin 19, as well as Pinnacle Partners? Um, yeah, thanks for asking. So I, I can be reached my website's Javelin 19, that's J-A-V-E-L. Uh, I N the number one, the number nine.com. Um, or you can always uh, just shoot me an email, um, Jill at javelin19.com. So welcome hearing from y'all. Sounds good. And for our listeners, if you want links to all the resources that we talked about in today's show, you can go to altsdb.com slash podcast to get all those links there. And don't forget to subscribe to the show on YouTube and your favorite podcast listening platform. So you can be sure to receive our new episodes as we release them. Jill, thanks again for coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks, Sandy. And just congrats. Um, you know, I continue to be impressed by your all's growth, um, what Jimmy and, and you all um, have created. So congrats on that and look forward to continuing to see you guys flourish. So congrats. Thanks. That's very kind. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. The Alternative Investment Podcast is produced by the Alternative Investment Database, online at altsdb.com. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and access the show notes by visiting altsdb.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode. 